Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. China has been in the headlines, recently brokering a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Plus, it's also proposed a deal between Ukraine and Russia. Bottom line, China's impact is growing past the Indo-Pacific. It's no secret that China is our pacing threat. However, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have also said that China's military buildup is only part of the equation that we need to track. Leadership has made it clear that in this era of great power competition, all aspects of international relations, including economic, diplomatic, political, and cultural areas are in play. So today, we're going to take a look at this broader equation by discussing one of China's flagship policies, the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI for short. While some describe BRI as just a foreign investment and infrastructure development program, in reality, China has been using it for years to spread their military, political, and economic influence around the world. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so we're very fortunate to welcome back my friend Daniel Rice to the podcast. For those of you who don't know Dan, Dan is the China military and political strategy subject matter expert at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, and a non-resident fellow here at the Mitchell Institute. Dan, thanks for coming to talk to us about how things like the BRI help China build international influence and what it all means for us as we consider the security landscape. Hey, Slick. Thanks for having me back. I always love being on the Aerospace Advantage, and hello to all the listeners out there. All right, Dan, we often use historical models a lot to understand current challenges. And to this point, I'm hearing folks refer a lot to the Cold War as they seek to understand the scale and scope of China's growing influence. Is this a fair comparison? Where do we see similarities and where is China different than what we saw with the Soviet Union when it comes to influence and great power competition? Yeah, that's a great question, Slick. So the biggest difference that I see between the Cold War and the current landscape is that the Cold War was largely based off of two different ideologies and two entire separate ecosystems. Think of the Iron Curtain, right, cutting off the East from the West. That is no longer really the case. So obviously through the last 30, 40 years, the world has seen tremendous globalization and interconnectivity of economies both in the East and the West and through individual countries. Now, with this current competition, there's a distinct lack of ideology coming out of at least the China sphere. They're not pushing for other countries to become communist or socialist. They're focused mostly on the development that they can get for themselves through their reach abroad. And on the U.S. side of the equation, again, we're not pushing ideology out to these different countries We are standing for universal values that we see as important, things like human rights and freedom of speech. But those are generally accepted by most peoples to be good and things that they want to pursue. So back to the current situation. Obviously, we have seen a unipolar world order for quite some time with the U.S. leading that through international institutions. 
And now China, they say they're on their path to national rejuvenation, and they want to see them have a equal cut or an equal part in these international conversations and international institutions. So ironically, China says that we see the world as going back to a Cold War style. However, obviously things have changed. And I would venture to say that one of the reasons that it's very easy for us to say, oh, it looks like the Cold War is because obviously many of our leaders lived through it and were cold warriors. So it is one way of looking at it. But I would say it is much more complicated now. Consider things like if you are preparing your child to go to school, right, and you go to Walmart and you pick up some simple things like a backpack and a lunch pail, those things are made in China, right? Or maybe even closer to home for those of you that don't have children, flip over your iPhone, look in the back, where does it say? It says made in China, right? So if the U.S. and China were to lock into this Cold War style of confrontation, you would suddenly see those things disappear off the shelves, which would hit home directly. And so that's why I say it's much more complicated now, is because you cannot lock into a Cold War mentality and a Cold War style competition without having direct consequences for the average folks back at home. So in this kind of new competition, there are fundamentally different approaches for the U.S. We look back to the institutions that we built post-World War II. We look at our strong military and we give security assurances to countries around the world. China's approach is fundamentally different. They look at it from an economic standpoint, and they look, again, to promote development for other countries and for fueling their own domestic development. Whether or not one is better than the other, I have no real opinion on that. They're just different ways of approaching the problem. Yeah, that, that's a great breakdown, Dan. Let's talk about some other ways that China is getting after a competition like the BRI. What is it? How did it get started? And why is it important now? Yeah, absolutely. So the BRI has got a little bit of history, actually, and it goes back really to the 2000s. And China was going through a period of development called the Gaiga Kaifang, the opening up and reform. And they saw tremendous economic growth, but primarily on their eastern coast. Think uh, dense population centers, places like Shanghai, Jian province, Guangdong, Beijing, all along the eastern coast. And there was a tremendous wealth disparity between the east and the west within mainland China. So then President and General Secretary Hu Jintao came up with an idea to rectify this disparity by promoting westward development. So think places like Xinjiang, right? He wanted to bring cultural, societal, and economic development to those westward provinces. And through the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping took that idea of westward expansion and tied it to foreign policy in what he called the Belt and Road Initiative, originally called One Belt, One Road. And actually that name changed to Belt and Road Initiative because it was more palatable to the international audience. So with the BRI, what Xi Jinping wanted to do was to link infrastructure and investment abroad to domestic companies, primarily in the Western provinces, to fuel their own development and growth. And that was part of this model of using abroad to fuel your own domestic growth. So that peaked right around 2015 in terms of the outward investment flows. There has been a slight decrease in the amount of Chinese yuan or Chinese dollars 
going out to those countries. And it's morphed a little bit in the ways that it's approached that kind of strategy. But that at its fundamental core is what it's aimed at doing. And right now, why is it important? It's because some of those projects that were originally developed are now being leveraged for international influence, for national security access, so things like ports, as well as it's shaping the conversation between smaller states on the international stage, so places like the UN. All right, Dan, I want to pull on the thread of what you just talked about, this idea of debt trap diplomacy. So can you talk to us about what it means when China buys up ports and other countries' national assets? Debt trap diplomacy, that's the big buzzword around it. And there's been a couple things coming out recently that really debunks the myth. But I'll go into a little bit of detail as to exactly what it means and what it looks like. So essentially, this idea of debt trap diplomacy, it pertains to strategic assets that countries have, like ports, like mining facilities, or even just access to international waters. And these countries signing on to infrastructure projects under the Belt and Road Initiative with the idea of being able to take Chinese dollars from Chinese banks on loan, use that money to develop these types of strategic assets, and then to pay back the money over time. Now, what ended up happening in certain examples, such as the port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka, was that the country fundamentally could not repay the loans that it took from Chinese banks. And so in the wheeling and dealing of figuring out the actual contract for how this can be repaid, some of the time, the Chinese have taken the, uh, an agreement to have a extended lease on these strategic assets as a way to repay debt that cannot be paid back in dollars from that nation. So that does play out into important security considerations, especially when you're looking at things like strategic access into areas like Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean, when you're looking at places like Djibouti or even like Tonga in the Pacific Islands, all of these assets or all of these agreements that China is gaining gives them a foothold abroad for which they could use for either civilian or military operations. And I do want to emphasize that China has not built any strictly overseas military bases. They are dual use. But in that gray area, there's obviously always the question of when will they or when could they use these things for military use? Beyond just things like ports and mining rights, there are also serious considerations into critical infrastructure in countries, especially with debt trap diplomacy, if we want to call it that. But things like China buying up 40% of the electrical grid in the Philippines, having that kind of access to if they need to or if they determine it's strategically relevant to be able to shut that down in times of conflict, that obviously will cause a lot of confusion and complicate operations in that area. Now, Dan, how widespread are these BRI investments, and how do you think they'll play out? Realistically, when the BRI really started, it was just casting as wide a net as possible. There was some strategic alignment in terms of the global south. So the idea of China being a leader for the global south has really been in Chinese politics for quite some time. So when the BRI did come online and dollars were able to flow outwards, they did target some of those areas, specifically Africa, Latin America, the Pacific Islands, and Southeast Asia. However, they did cast quite a wide net. So you see things like 
ports in Germany, in Greece, development in Eastern Europe, development in the Middle East, in Central Asia. It's really all over the place, and it's gotten a little bit out of control. So as I mentioned before, peak funding stopped sometime around 2015, and it's cut back a little bit. And now I think what we will see as some of these agreements and contracts have not panned out the way that both parties planned, that China is going to have to strategically pick which areas it wants to double down on, ensure success in those projects, and then leverage that for what they will. All of this in context, there are approximately 151 countries that have signed on to work with the BRI. However, that does not mean that all 151 countries have physical infrastructure projects. As of now, there are more memorandums of agreement than anything else. So yeah, I do think that as we see individual projects either succeed or fail, China will need to refocus their overall wide net strategy to be much more targeted. Dan, was China's approach different in one region than another? In each region, there are specific interests at stake. So places like Africa, there are strategic resources, things like chromium for steel production, things like cobalt for the production of batteries, which are key to fueling high-tech growth. When you're looking elsewhere, so say the Middle East, Things like energy, right? Oil, access to oil is very important. When you're looking at places like the Indo-Pacific islands or even Southeast Asia, there's much more strategic access that's in play there. And yeah, these projects, they do reflect that. If you specifically in Southeast Asia, when you're thinking about the Straits of Malacca as a strategic choke point, There are considerable BRI projects that are aimed at moving away from having to use the Straits of Malacca for access to things like Iranian oil or even oil just generally out of the Middle East. Then when you're looking into Africa, the projects do look a lot more like railways and mining projects and how can you extract resources and then transport them to ports to then be shipped overseas, or in this case, back to China. So they are targeted in that way. All right, so why is this so important? Infrastructure abroad, I get it, but how does it play into bigger things like geopolitics? Strategic encirclement is one of their primary fears, especially if it's encirclement by a coalition of states, right? So what we've seen, at least out of the Russia-Ukraine war, is that coalitions can have significant effects on a country without necessarily having to go to war. Things like against Russia have had significant impacts on their ability for their economy to continue to grow or even to function, really. So strategic encirclement for China means having a lot of countries on their periphery all aligned against their own interests. And we do see one of our key strategic partners in the region, Japan, having somewhat different views of what the Asia-Pacific regional security architecture should look like. By China looking elsewhere, and by elsewhere I mean to countries that don't fall under that traditional umbrella of what we consider our allies and partners in the region, China's looking at places like Cambodia and Myanmar and Malaysia, those kinds of countries, there will be for them some opportunity to be able to leverage these agreements through the BRI 
to gain influence in the direction that those countries go and therefore help diversify the risk of strategic containment by more, we'll call them Western-aligned countries or traditional allies and partners in the region from the U.S. side. So yes, that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it that I think is worth mentioning goes back to that dual-use conversation, right? So Djibouti down in Africa is a dual-use facility. What that means for China is that if China gets to the point where it has a blue water navy and can use its power projection farther than in its immediate periphery, that will allow them to operate at farther distances away from the Chinese mainland. So if you have other projects that are dual use, one can think of the Solomon Islands as a potential area for China to operate then they can leverage these BRI projects and that economic interconnectivity that they pursue through these projects to then give them farther and farther access away from the mainland. And that will have significant geopolitical implications when we're looking at future security architectures for different regions. All right, to sum it up, I think we're hearing that China has a hypothesis and a set of expectations when pursued to debt trap diplomacy. Do you think the real world results are matching their theory? And how do you expect this to continue or evolve? Yeah, so it probably is not matching up to what their expectations were. I do think that a lot of times when China entered into these agreements, they had genuinely good ideas of, hey, we'll bring development to this country, it'll all work out, and they call it win-win diplomacy, right? So they were thinking it was all going to be win-win, and then the reality of working in a complex geopolitical environment set in, especially when you're looking at places like Africa, where there are persistent threats of instability, almost constant insurgencies popping up here and there, especially in the Sahel region. Then you look at things like the Middle East. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues about how China had really screwed up the relationship with Iran at one point in time over a set of islands that was being fought over between, I think it was Iran and maybe Saudi Arabia, and they had made some political snafu, and it really caused a serious concern for Iran in how China was viewing the geopolitics there. When China has taken all of these really broad brush strokes in their BRI projects, they have stumbled into situations in which it's just not going to be workable or it will be very difficult to make these projects work. And one of the ways that you can get after that, which should be a serious concern for us, is to provide security for these projects, right? And that's when you cross the line from simply having something that is, we'll call it a mining operation in the DRC, turn into all of a sudden a Chinese security attachment over in these mining operations just to make sure that they can have continued and sustained access to these resources. So that is, that's the real world application of picking projects in remote areas that you then need to secure. I don't know if they really thought that was going to be the case. And especially when you look at the way that the investment in these projects is gone, I think that China is looking at it and saying, Okay, one way was to put construction worker boots on the ground, we'll call it that. But there are other ways to get after that, and one of them could be through mergers and acquisitions, right? You might not need to send Chinese construction workers abroad if you can simply buy up half of a company and then have it under Chinese ownership 
and still get the return on investment or ROI that they need for that domestic development. So that's how I expect it to evolve in the future. And like I mentioned, I do think there are substantial projects abroad, specifically in Africa and specifically in Southeast Asia that China will continue to pursue simply because the juice is worth the squeeze for those projects. However, it will require them to make some hard decisions on how they can either justify a tremendous amount of expenditure to make sure that those projects succeed, or in the event that the region is unstable, then having to provide some sort of security guarantee for those countries that are involved. One place we've been seeing China really make moves in its relationship with Russia, before the 2022 Beijing Olympics, China and Russia announced a, quote, partnership without limits. And then during the Russia-Ukraine war, China's been buying Russian oil. Now we're hearing about reports where China might send lethal aid to Russia. So what's driving this and what's in it for China? So we've spent a lot of time discussing the BRI and a little bit about the future shape of the world order. Now, the China-Russia relationship is directly related to what that might look like. And I say that because from the Chinese perspective, they fundamentally believe that a multipolar world order is the way that everything will shake out and that China, Russia, and the United States will be three of the poles in that order. There could be some question as to whether or not the EU is its own pole or places like Iran might eventually develop into one. That's much too far in the future to even speculate on. But they do know that Russia has historically been one of the largest power brokers in their periphery and in their regions, specifically when you look at the history with the USSR. The China-Russia relationship is fundamentally built on trying to promote the idea of a multipolar order in which no one country has significant say or influence over the international world order, except from the Chinese perspective, maybe China. <laughs> However, with Russia, it's obviously been caught up in some sort of pursuit of the historical memory of what the USSR was. When you're looking at Ukraine, taking back territory they believe was theirs. And China shares similar aspirations, especially when you're looking at Taiwan um, and even the South China Sea, right? So there's not only some ideological alignment there between the two countries, but there's also this need for China to break from a bipolar world order to a multipolar world order with Russia as one of the pillars. And so that's why you've seen them one day, they say, oh no, the Russia-Ukraine war is not great. The next day they say, Russia's justified in its actions. It's being strategically contained by NATO and therefore needs to lash out. And we saw that when they started purchasing oil, even though there were sanctions on Russia's oil exports. And then more recently, when Wang Yi was, I guess right now he's actually on a trip to Russia, and he's discussing a brokering peace between Russia and Ukraine, because if Russia is entangled in the Russia-Ukraine war for too long, it will drain all of its resources in trying to pursue that objective, and it will leave it fundamentally weakened in, in this kind of multipolar world that China sees as beneficial. So they're looking to make sure that Russia is not too weakened, but at the same time that they 
are weakened enough to not cause concerns for China's own security, if that makes sense. And it is a complicated game, but China, with their proposed peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine, with the recent signing of the peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, they seem like they're trying to flex some muscles in being that international broker, international power broker. And if, I don't think this will happen, but if China was the leader of an agreement between Russia and Ukraine, that would radically shock the world, I think, and seriously cause questions as to who is the one that's brokering power on at least that set of continents. So it is complicated. I do think that China sees Russia as a potential partner, not so far as ally, but a significant player in their vision for a future world order. All right, Dan, let's bring it all back here. So we've talked about the BRI and China's changing role in global politics. What can we do better to compete against this new threat? And are there things that you've seen or you've been a part of that might help us frame our thinking about this new great power competition? So the million dollar question, there, there have been things that I've seen and been a part of that can help frame this thinking. And I think I would lead with this. First and foremost, there is a living memory amongst the various regions of the world of the U.S. being the leader for the free world, period, dot. Now, where we need to focus is to not only promote, but also invest in maintaining that relationship and making sure that countries that do have either ideological or moral alignment with the United States are supported in those efforts. And I was at a conference recently that did a round-the-world tour of China's influence in different regions and the U.S.'s involvement in them, and almost every single region was screaming, we need more U.S. involvement, we need more U.S. dollars, we need more U.S. people out there promoting those relationships. And I think that's where we need to go in this this kind of multipolar competition that we might be facing in the future. Like I said, we have a comparative advantage right out of the gates. We do have that, the history from World War II, the idea that we can step in, that we are an equal player, that we promote individual countries' ideas and their own interests. But we need more of that and we need to try to get away from imposing our own values on countries that might not align with us and rather address the needs and concerns that they have if possible. Because I'll say this much, China approaches the problem set that way. They're not saying you must become a democracy, not that we do, but they're just looking at what does this country need and how can we support them? And then they leverage that influence in things like the UN to sway different votes or to gain that access that we discussed earlier. So the more that China does that, and the less that we do that, the more that we will find a Chinese either embassy or diplomatic mission in a country that we normally would have had more sway in. It all comes back to investment. It matters where you put the money. So one of the best ways that we can also get after this is looking at our own comparative advantages at home. Right? We are an innovation hub for the rest of the world, and 
we need to pursue that. We need to have more investment in things like education across the different um, the different spheres in in our own society, and promoting the idea of, I guess, lead by example rather than lead by words. One other thing that we can do is really leverage the alliances and partnerships that we have, and specifically in diplomacy, if that's a real thing and if it's something we can get after. One of the biggest things that came out recently was Japan plans on investing $75 billion for regional development as a way to counter Chinese growing influence in their immediate periphery. I'm not sure if we're a part of that agreement or if it's possible to become part of that agreement, but I think for certain, if we can, we should, and we should promote all of our allies, especially close ones like Japan, as they pursue their own diplomatic overtures to other countries in the region, because we can't do this alone. And the final thought that I would have on that front, an ally, by definition, is going to be more of a military ally. And I've spoken with some of our partners around the globe recently, and this one idea keeps coming out, and it's, if you're an ally, don't just be a military ally. Be an ally in all regards. So more economic interconnectivity, more diplomatic exchanges, more societal level exchanges. Be more than just a military friend or a military ally. Be a whole of society ally. So I think that's something we can get after as well. And is there a risk that China faces blowback, that the theory of BRI doesn't play out as they expect? I think as a global leader with decades of experience, we could attest to numerous examples where the theory America has pursued doesn't always match real world results. I would say there's been blowback. And I'll go back to the Africa example because it's one that I wrote on recently. It's one of the better examples out there. So if you look at the trend of the funding and the projects that are still incomplete, then there is significant blowback from countries that signed on to agreements that are not seeing the investments that they were promised or the contracts that were originally put in place have been rewritten to reflect the situation on the ground, generally in the favor of China. So those countries, there is a significant pushback at the societal level from the people saying, we partnered with China, because we wanted this development and it's not forthcoming. Um, another example, one of the probably the strangest and most important example, I would say is Pakistan. So Pakistan and China share something that they call something along the lines of like Iron Brothers, right? And Pakistan is one of the key launching points for the global BRI through the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Long story short, there's a lot of investment projects and with the drawback in funding, at some point in time, Imran Khan was going to China and he was saying, hey, where's the funding? Are these projects actually going to be completed? That looks really bad on the international stage, especially if your value proposition for the world is that you are bringing the dollars. We will help you develop. Just sign on to these agreements and then all of a sudden nothing happens or you lose your strategic assets. That's not the way that they thought it would play out, but it is the way that it's playing out in certain areas. There, as with everything, there are success stories for China, and there are also 
tragedies and finding the balance will be pretty key for them if they can continue to pursue their strategic goals. Well, Dan, I just want to let you know how much we appreciate your time today for making all of us smarter about China. I can't wait to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much, Slick. It's always fun talking with you. So hopefully I'll be back on soon. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.